Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 24, Darius the Great. This is the third and final episode on the early military activity of King Darius I. It took us five episodes to get from the beginning of 522 BCE to the end of 521. In that span, I discussed the revolt of Bardia against his brother Cambyses, Cambyses' own sudden and unexpected death from infection before he could ever confront his brother, Bardia's sudden rise to power and even more sudden fall from the throne, the coup of Darius and his six conspirators, the revelation that Bardia may actually have been the Magian impostor named Gomada, and finally, in the most recent few episodes, I followed the detailed chronology of the Behistun inscription as Darius put down a series of revolts all over his newly acquired empire. Today, we're taking the story one step further as Darius sets out to continue the grand imperial project started by Cyrus the Great and expand the Persian Empire to its greatest ever extent. That brings me to the title of this episode. Up to this point, I've just referred to the current king in our narrative as Darius. But very often, in places like history books and his Wikipedia page, Darius I, King of Kings, is known as Darius the Great. Of course, all of the Achaemenid kings are called great in their own monuments and records. One of their official titles is Great King, after all. But the Greek tradition, and therefore the Roman, European, and English traditions, attach great, or megas in Greek, to only a few Persians in all of Achaemenid history. We really only give that title to three kings as an epithet. We already know Cyrus, and obviously I'm talking about Darius. The third is only sort of an Achaemenid king. It's Alexander, the Macedonian conqueror who brought the Achaemenid dynasty to an end. So count him if you want, don't if you don't. All three of them do have one great thing in common, though. They were conquerors who pushed the boundaries of their kingdoms to new extremes. Cambyses, unfortunately for him, had his reputation so thoroughly dragged through the historical mud that he didn't get the title. Of course, all of them had other merits, too, as great organizers, reformers, or charismatic leaders, and I'll get to all of that in time, but conquest really does stick out as the common theme here. So let's start conquering. We actually sort of started this in the last episode. If you remember, the last event recorded in the Behistun inscription was Darius's campaign against the Saka in 519 BCE. He listed the Saka amongst the provinces who rebelled in 522, 
but the events described in 519 sound much more like conquest than fighting rebellions. So it may be that this was the first time Achaemenid control was forced on the pointed hat-wearing Sokka in and around modern Kazakhstan. Either way, the territory of the Sokka in southern Kazakhstan represented the northernmost border of the Achaemenid Empire by the end of 519. I also discussed Egypt last time. Though it was mentioned in the Behistun inscription, the end of the Egyptian revolt was not explained there, leaving the final confrontation between King Darius and Pharaoh Petubastet much murkier than the wars with other rebel kings. It seems that the rebellion was ongoing when Darius arrived in Memphis in 518, but the satrap Aryandes had at least pushed it back from the Nile and into the western oases. From about 518 to 517 or 16, Darius and his satrap Ariandes campaigned in Egypt to finish off that revolt. Now, we don't have a ton of information about Cambyses' conquest of Egypt outside of what Herodotus tells us, and the little tiny bits that we can glean from scattered records with his name on them. What neither the Egyptians or the Greeks say very much about is those western oases. Historically, they were affiliated with whatever pharaoh happened to rule the Nile, but they were far enough away and so isolated that they could resist heavily if they wanted to. The one story we do have about Cambyses' army going west ends with their utter destruction, though, as I said last time, that might actually have been some of Darius and Ariandes' forces. Nothing before Darius really makes the western oases sound like they were conquered by the Persians, so it's completely possible that Darius wasn't just putting down a revolt in Egypt, but also properly conquering the oases for the first time. His name is all over the ruins at a lot of those sites, and in fact, Darius's name is recorded on more Egyptian tablets and monuments than any other Achaemenid because of the building projects he used to try and solidify Persian rule in the two lands. By 517, or maybe 516, all of Egypt was clearly Persian territory. But earmark satrap Ariandes over there, because I'm going to be looping back to him by the end of this episode. At this point, 517 BCE, Western Egypt was also the westernmost point in the empire. So naturally, the next events I want to cover are in India. I touched on this even less than Egypt last time. Like Egypt, an Indian province was recorded in the Behistun inscription, but not discussed in any detail. That's a shame, because any information at all about any Achaemenid province in India would be really helpful, since you and I probably know as much as most scholars who study ancient Persia do on the subject before I even get into it. That is to say, we all know almost nothing. Also, when I say India here, I mean historical India, which includes most of the modern nations of India and Pakistan. Possibly all of Achaemenid territory that I'm calling Indian was in modern Pakistan. Of course, scholars have theories and ideas, but nothing can be taken as firm fact. We know so little that one of the more prominent articles on the subject is titled, Where Was Achaemenid India? And that was a sincere question. We actually just have no idea. The fact that Satagadia, Thatagush in Old Persian, is included at Behistun has generally led scholars to the logical conclusion that it was already part of the empire before Darius, and thus part of Cyrus's conquest. In fact, it is one of two quote-unquote Indian provinces listed by Behistun. The other is Gandhara, or Gadara, 
There are two further Indian provinces in Achaemenid history, too, Gedrosia and Hindush for a total of four. Of that quartet, Gedrosia and Gandhara are probably the easiest to work with geographically, because their names remained in use for those regions for much longer. Gedrosia is the inhospitable arid desert in southern Pakistan and Iran that's known alternatively as the Makran or Baluchistan now and that remained the name of the region throughout the Hellenistic period. Gandhara was located in the northwest Pakistani border with Afghanistan, and that name was used until the 12th century CE, so we're pretty confident about where that is. The exact location of the other two is generally unknown. They are thought to have been on the Indus River in the easternmost provinces of the empire, with Gandhara to the north and Gedrosia to the southwest but which one was which is a matter of debate. If you pull up a few maps of the Achaemenid Empire online, I can almost guarantee you that no two maps will put these provinces in exactly the same place. Satakadea particularly has a bad habit of moving into Central Asia on the more poorly researched maps. Even two maps by the same person flip which one is which, north and south. On the one hand, Gandhara is in the north and is the only one mentioned alongside Satakadea, so it stands to reason that when Cyrus came to the region, he conquered the northern part and left. But pretty much all of the sources and scholars agree that Cyrus also conquered Gedrosia, either because it's part of the same place as the Maka, which is mentioned at Behistun, or because controlling Gedrosia would have been key to conquering Maka, historically a name for the strip of Arabian coast that is now the east coast of Oman which I'll talk about in more detail in a future episode. If Cyrus had indeed conquered Gedrosia, then it's just as likely that he invaded the Indus Valley from the south. In Where Was Achaemenid India, David Fleming suggests that because Hindush was the wealthiest of these satrapies, and because Satakadea, Gandhara, and certainly Gedrosia all seem to have been relatively poor, that Hindush must have been in the wealthier northern part of the Indus Valley, which seems good enough for me. So that places Satagadea on the southern Indus River, from the mouth of the river to somewhere around modern Kundian. And of course, it's entirely possible that the name shifted around a bit when Darius reorganized the region after his conquest. Sometime between 518 and 515, a Persian army invaded the Indus Valley, where they reasserted a Caymanid control over Satagadea and conquered and created the new satrapy of Hindush. In Greek, Hindush was rendered as Indos, and in Latin that became Indus, and over time that's where we get the name India. I'd love to have an epic story or detailed military account of the kings Darius or even Cyrus faced when they invaded the region. Who they were affiliated with, how the wars were fought, anything of exciting substance to add to the story here, but I just don't. One minute, they've never been heard of before, then Satagadea is in rebellion, then all four Indian provinces are part of the empire. The actual events are basically lost to us. Making things much worse is the fact that we don't have any firm Indian record for the Caymanids at all. To be fair, we don't have many Indian sources from the 6th century to begin with, but one we do have is a geographer named Panyini from Gandahara itself, and he doesn't mention anything that could even be interpreted as the Persian Empire. It's just a confusing mess. The only story related to us by an ancient source comes from Herodotus, 
and as usual, he chose to follow a single Greek character rather than explaining the broader geopolitics of the Persian Empire. In this case, it is the Carian riverboat captain Skulaks of Karyanda. As a Carian, he was a native to the southwest coast of Anatolia and probably a Greek speaker. His story is an interesting one, but first, I have to talk about this guy's name. Just for a second, because it's kind of ridiculous. In English, it's usually Latinized and looks like Silax, the same way that Scythians became Scythians. But if you know the classical pronunciation, that becomes skulox. Now, if you know modern Greek, you probably know that skilos is the word for a dog. These two words are connected, but in ancient Greek, a dog was a kouon, related to the Latin canis and the English canine by extension. But much like English, the ancient Greeks did not use the same word for a young dog that they did for the adults. The ancient Greek word for a puppy was skulox. So this riverboat captain was named Puppy, and over time, modern Greeks just started calling all dogs pups, so to speak. It's a little more complicated than that linguistically. So anyway, Captain Puppy here was sent on a fact-finding reconnaissance mission by Darius before the invasion of India. According to Herodotus, he and his fleet of ships started in a place called Pactiica. That's not a real place, so far as anyone can tell, so it's generally taken to be somewhere in Gandhara, at this point the northeast extent of Achaemenid power. Herodotus says that they sailed east on the Indus, which probably really means southeast on the Kuram River, then south on the Indus, charting the relatively unknown region for the Persian king before exiting the mouth of the river and attempting to make their way to Egypt. Herodotus says that they sailed around the whole of Africa, taking 30 months for their voyage. But in all likelihood, if they made the massive journey at all, they probably came up the Red Sea and made landfall on the Egyptian east coast. That would certainly explain why Darius's canal between the Nile and the Red Sea often became associated with Skulox's journey in later sources. Captain Puppy himself wrote an account of their voyages, and that was used as a source and reference by a handful of later authors like Herodotus. Unfortunately, the account itself is lost. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Our next stop on this whirlwind tour of the empire is with our old friends on the Greek island of Samos. Since the reign of Cyrus the Great, the Samian tyrant Polycrates had frustrated the Persians for his own game. At first, it was an alliance with Egypt to antagonize the Anatolian coast. Then he switched sides to help Cambyses only to send rebellious ships and he, like so many others, probably saw an opportunity to get out when Cambyses died. Unfortunately for him, he'd already made an enemy out of Aroites, the satrap of Sparta, and he was tricked into coming to the mainland where Aroites captured and executed him. For more about Polycrates and his misadventures with the Persians, you can check out episode 19, The Tyrant and the Kings. Since Polycrates' death, Samos had been ruled by a new tyrant called Myandros, who was attempting to transition from an autocratic tyranny to a democracy in the same vein as Athens. But his brothers weren't having any of this and wanted to restore the tyranny, of course with one of themselves as tyrant. The Persians always kept one eye on the powerful Greek island and saw this discord as their chance to take control of Samos and start spreading out into the Aegean islands. Darius had his agents dig up Silason, a younger brother of Polycrates, and offer him Samos in exchange for being a client of the great king. Silason agreed and sailed off to the island with a Persian army in tow under the command of Otanes, one of the seven conspirators against Bardia. The Samians remembered the good old days under Polycrates and welcomed Silason with open arms, but no good tyrant goes that quietly. Myandros was happy to sneak off the island and run for his life, but one of his brothers hired mercenaries and attacked the Persians. Otanes defeated the mercenaries, killed the would-be tyrant, and sacked the city of Samos, while Silason was left to rule in the aftermath and Otanes returned to the mainland after securing Persia's new holdings, and possibly conquering a few of the surrounding islands too. Around the same time, back in Egypt, the satrap Ariandes resumed Persian ambitions in Libya. Herodotus reports that Cambyses had accepted tribute and submissions from the Greek cities in Libya led by Cyrene, but if that happened at all, it was half-hearted at best. The Persians didn't actually control Libya, and apparently they weren't paying their tribute anymore either. According to Herodotus, Samos wasn't the only Greek city undergoing regime change in the 510s BCE. Arkesilos, the tyrant of Cyrene, had recently been killed in a civil war, and his mother had fled to the satrapal court in Egypt for help, refuge, and maybe revenge. She called on the satrap to defeat the faction in Cyrenaica that had killed her son. Only too happy to extend Persian territory and his own tax base, Ariandes led an army westward on the North African coast to conquer the Greeks and native Libyan tribes that lived there. First, he took the city of Barca, which had once been an Egyptian tributary, and then proceeded to conquer Cyrene, imposing Egyptian power further west than ever before. Though he nominally defeated a variety of other Libyan tribes, even Herodotus says that they never generally paid attention to the Persians, and Ariandes' power never really extended beyond the cities. Despite that, Cyrenaica, the area around Cyrene, was now the westmost point in the Persian Empire. By 515 or so, 
the Indus Valley, Samos, and Libya were in Achaemenid hands, and it was time for Darius to turn his personal attention westward. Around the same time the campaigns in India were wrapping up, Theseus tells us that the satrapy of Cappadocia in northeast Anatolia was attacked by Scythians. These were not the usual Saka horsemen who raided out of the steppe in the Eastern Empire, but their European Scythian cousins who apparently sailed from somewhere across the Black Sea to raid the Cappadocian coast. In retaliation, the satrap area Romneys loaded a small force onto ships and sent them across the sea to attack the Scythians themselves. Apparently, he just vastly underestimated what he was dealing with, but in doing so, he opened up a new frontier in Persian history, Europe. Not long after, Darius himself gathered a large army in Anatolia from sources all over the empire, and launched Persia's first campaign into Europe, in a story told by Herodotus. For the first time, the Persians constructed a pontoon bridge across the Bosphorus Strait at the site of a minor city called Byzantium, and they proceeded to march across that bridge into Europe for the first time. It may not have seemed like a particularly momentous gap to cross for a king who had so recently extended his territory 3,000 miles or 4,800 kilometers away. It certainly wouldn't have seemed like that big of a deal to the Greek soldiers in the army, whose culture encircled the whole region. But history and propaganda have turned this into a momentous step on the way to some of history's most famous events. And maybe it was. The Persian army crossed the narrow strait separating Europe from Asia, with the naval fleet following along the coast, and entered a territory known as Thrace, which extended from the west coast of the Black Sea to the northern edges of Greece, and north from the Aegean coast to some indeterminate point beyond where native Thracian tribes were replaced by Celts and Scythians. Of course, there were also Celts and Scythians in Thrace, so it's not the best defined border in history. Rather than passing through the region, looting, raiding, and pursuing his Scythian targets, Darius aimed to subjugate everything they encountered. The Persians set off along the northwest coast of the Black Sea. Herodotus tells the whole story of the invasion of Eastern Europe as a framing device for a detailed ethnography of the various peoples who lived there. I could recount all of them and the descriptions given by Herodotus, but frankly it's tedious and most of them will never come up again, so I'll spare you. What's important to know here is that they conquered or accepted submission from every tribe, village, and city on the Black Sea coast up to the Danube Delta on the modern border of Romania and Ukraine. They constructed another pontoon bridge for the land army to cross the Danube and left the fleet of Greek ships to guard the crossing, supposedly with instructions to destroy the bridge and leave if the king wasn't back in two months. On the other side of the Danube, the Persians had entered the territory the Greeks could only describe as Scythia. It was a land settled by few cities and towns ruled by nomadic horsemen of the various Scythian tribes. Seeing a massive army bearing down on them, the Scythian groups had formed a coalition to harass and defeat the Persians. For the next month, Darius and his army marched further and further east in pursuit of the Scythians, but they never fought a battle. These were the horse-riding pastoralists whose herds of goats and cattle moved with them as they traveled across vast open grasslands. The Persian army, dependent on an ever longer supply chain, just couldn't compete or move fast enough to catch the Scythians. 
They couldn't even forage for food because the Scythians had burned everything worth eating as they fled the Persians, and would swoop in and kill Persian hunting parties. Supposedly, Darius sent a message to the Scythian king, demanding an open battle, and the king replied that they would fight if only Darius would reach the tombs of the Scythian forefathers. That message is probably an apocryphal flair added by Herodotus, but if it were true, it probably referred to a Kurgan cemetery like I talked about way back in episode 2, so deep on the interior of the steppe that no Persian army could ever realistically reach it. Exactly how far east they went is unknown. Herodotus says that they captured and burned the city of Gelenos, a trade hub and ally of the Scythians, but we don't know where that was. None of the Greek names for the rivers in the region have survived into their modern Slavic names, so everything is confused and we don't actually know which one was the Oris River referred to by Herodotus. Some archaeologists suggest that it's in Bilsk, Ukraine. Others say that it was on the Don River in southwest Russia, and others still place Gelenos even further east on the Volga. Wherever it was, Herodotus says that the Persians constructed eight forts along this new frontier to combat further Scythian invasions, and then they turned around and headed back home, leaving just a small contingent to man those forts. Some modern maps of the Achaemenid Empire will extend their control all the way around the Black Sea, but they certainly didn't control the Scythians there. It's possible that Darius took tribute from some of the Greek cities in regions like Crimea, but most scholars don't think Persian control ever really reached beyond the Danube. According to Herodotus, a contingent of Scythians raced ahead of the Persians to try and convince the Greeks holding the Danube river crossing to destroy the bridge, go home, and leave Darius's army to die in hostile territory. The Greeks, surprisingly enough, refused. Apparently, they still feared the king of kings more than they trusted the Scythians. However, that attitude might have started changing when they saw a frustrated and dejected Persian army march back out of the steppes. The campaign wasn't a defeat. They never did fight a battle with the Scythians. But it wasn't a success. The Scythians weren't formally subjugated. The Persians didn't control those tribes. Of course, that didn't stop Darius from claiming the Saka across the sea as his subjects. But by the time of his son Xerxes, they'd already dropped the act and stopped listing the Scythians in their subject lists. Darius and some of the army headed for the Chersonese, the modern Gallipoli Peninsula, and went home, leaving an army in Europe under the command of Megabazos, another of the conspirators against Bardia. Megabazos proceeded to conquer western Thrace, a gold-rich territory filled with competing factions. Various Thracian tribes and Greek cities all competed for power and dominance in the region, and they were easy pickings for a strong army to march in and enforce centralized control with violent conquest. He started with Perinthos on the Sea of Marmara, and then marched across the region, once again conquering everything they found, including a number of Greek cities along the Thracian coast, and a particularly troublesome tribe or group of tribes called the Paeonians. Evidently, they were some of the greatest resistance or most fractious people in the region, because Megabazos had many of them deported to Phrygia in northern Anatolia. On the western end of Thrace, Megabazos found a mountainous kingdom that spoke an unusual dialect of Greek, unlike any of the other Greek subjects in the empire. It was ruled by a petty king named Amintas, and his son, the young prince Alexander. This was Persia's first experience with the little kingdom of Macedon, and coincidentally, the first of many negative experiences with young, violent Macedonian royals named Alexander. King Amintas I offered Megabazos a gift of earth and water, 
a traditional sign of submission, handing the land and water of his own territory over to the Persians. In exchange for his willing submission, Amintas and his family, the Argiad dynasty of Macedonia, were allowed to remain in power. After the death of Amintas in 498, the relationship was almost immediately compromised when some of the Persian nobles in Macedon got too friendly with the wives of some of the Macedonian nobles. In retaliation, the newly minted King Alexander I and his men murdered some of those Persians. Open warfare was avoided by a diplomatic marriage. Alexander gave his sister Gygia to Megabasos' son, Bubares, as a wife, and Bubares went on to become a prominent engineer under Xerxes I almost 30 years later. So I'll come back to him someday, but not soon. The brash decision to kill the Persians cost Alexander, who is now forced to rule with Persian agents at his court full-time to ensure his compliance. The Persians left with Gygea as insurance, and the Macedonians promised to pay their tribute. No source records whether Darius had given orders not to invade Greece proper yet in 512 BC, or if that was an executive decision made by Megabazus. But after a year of overall successful conquests in Thrace, the Persian army finally turned around and went home with two new provinces to show for it, at least nominally. Garrisons were established in the cities and they were incorporated into the empire, but both Herodotus and the archaeological record indicate it took decades for the Persians to solidify their grip on Thrace and Macedon continued to act as a semi-independent vassal until seizing their independence from Xerxes. Regardless of any technicalities, this is it. The Achaemenid Empire has peaked. We've met fewer than half their kings, covered less than 50 of their 220 years, and all that in fewer than 25 episodes. But this is as big as it gets. This is the biggest Persian empire this podcast will ever see. The borders will keep shifting, and some new places will come into and out of the empire as time goes on, but here we are. In the west, Persian power ends in Libya. In the east, it ends on the Indus River. In the south, we have Maka on the Arabian Peninsula, modern Oman, and in the north, the vaguely defined territory of the Saka, modern Kazakhstan. Now it's time to take a break from the linear narrative of things. Much like the last decade of Cyrus's reign, the time lapse between 512 and 499, when the next big narrative event occurs, provides some good opportunity for me to take some time and cover the major developments under Darius. Things like writing, artwork, construction, and legal reforms. But first, I've got two or three episodes planned to wrap up this first phase of Darius's reign. So next time, I'm going back to the Behistun inscription to cover the whole thing in detail from top to bottom. Until then, for more information, check out the historyofpersiapodcast.com for more information, maps, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page for the show. If you want to help the show, Please check out those links, but also leave reviews on your podcast service of choice like iTunes or Stitcher, and tell your friends. That is the number one way you can help me. Let everybody know that the history of Persia is out here. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, share it on Instagram, share it everywhere. To find me on all of those social media sites, I am at History of Persia on Twitter and at History of Persia Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. That's all for now, so thank you all so much for listening to the history of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.